This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from comedian Lee Camp, The Majority Report, The Young Turks, The Onion Radio News, Counterspin, The Jimmy Dore Show, Moyers and Company, Howdyland.com, and The David Pakman Show. And a note for our poorer listeners, I'm sure that if you sacrifice just a little bit more, that the rich in this country will come around and meet you halfway. Keep at it. As millions around the world try to survive with a lack of resources, we need to remember that it's almost never because the resources aren't there. They are. There's more empty houses in this country than homeless people. I mean, Jesus Christ, there's probably enough boarded up borders, bookstores, or Barnes and Nobles to give every homeless veteran their own personal franchise location. And there's enough water to create bright green golf courses in the middle of deserts and restaurants throw enough unsold desserts in the garbage to turn every hungry person into a morbidly obese, gently undulating mountain of syrupy flesh. So why is anybody starving, cold, thirsty, or homeless? Seems like fixing this dilemma should be easier than getting at an orgy. The resources are there. It's the money that isn't there. Philosopher Alan Watts described it well when he wrote that saying there isn't enough money is basically like a builder saying there's not enough inches. There's enough wood, nails, hammers, we got all that, but we've used up all the inches. It's our archaic confusion between money and true wealth that stops us from providing food, clothing, and housing for everyone. Money is but a symbol, and we've allowed this symbol to infect our skulls. I think we should start with this symbol. Avoid it whenever you get the chance. If you're a dentist, give out free checkups in exchange for groceries instead of using money. If you're a sexy woman, give out naked photos of yourself in exchange for a bottle of wine. Not everyone will want them, but some people will. There's plenty of traits and talents you can barter with. Advice, massages, homemade jewelry, hugs, secrets, exotic snakes or erotic cakes, whatever the and for the most part, the problem is not finding things to give, it's finding people to take the exchange. So I want to encourage store owners and shopkeepers to do it. If some strange person walks into your shop and offers you a scented candle for a candy bar or a photo of their for a pastry, take it. What do you have to lose? Chances are you'll use the candle, and if nothing else, you'll get a funny story. Plus, no one gets a cut of this. No one else gets a cut of this. No taxes or Federal Reserve involvement. No millionaires grabbing at it. And even if they try, what's 10% of a hot stone massage? I'm not saying this is going to change the world. It won't. But what it will do is change our perception of money. All of a sudden, the stupid green pieces of paper would go back to being a symbol rather than being a way of life, rather than being something you destroy your family and friends over. The best things in You all know that 47% represents the number of people who do not pay any federal income tax, either because they're a senior citizen, 
either because they're a family of four that has a series of deductions and doesn't make uh, more than fifty or sixty thousand dollars a year either because they're a vet or they're disabled mostly because their income uh, just doesn't reach a threshold as part of uh, earned income tax credits that were passed by republicans peace um, by Bruce Watson at the Daily Finance from AOL. When measured properly, including Medicare and Social Security taxes, 86% of taxpayers pay into the federal system. 86%. The remaining 14% are either retired elderly people or students and disabled. So everybody else essentially pays. Everybody else pays some type of federal uh, tax. The poorest 20% of workers pay a far larger percent of their income in Social Security tax than the richest 20%. But the real place where poor people take a hit is in state taxes. In the median state, Mississippi, the poorest 20% of workers pay almost twice as high a percentage of their income as the richest 1%. In Washington state, they pay 17.3% of their income, more than six times as much as the top 1%. Because this is where you get really hit with, state, with uh, sales taxes. So when you hear people say, like, we should just go to one big sales tax on everything, Understand that the poor spend most of their paychecks on necessities because they don't have the capacity to go out and buy luxuries. They're living week to week on their paychecks. They're spending all of their money on food, shelter, clothing, and they're not investing it. They're not saving it. They're expending it on things that they're going to have to pay sales tax. So they pay a much higher percentage in sales taxes to their income than the wealthy do. There's just not enough yachts and carpeted sinks and, you know, $200,000 cars for the wealthy to pay to make it up in their sales tax. You see, it seems we're building us a jail. Folks who think the future's not the same And it won't even help to lock the door Cause we're already in your house And we're coming back for more Please ignore your instincts Cause this grass ain't got no roots Just look the other way, my friend While we rewrite the truth And forgive us if there's no check in the mail but it seems some things are just too big to fail And what would you use that billion dollars for anyway? Cause we know where you live And we're coming back for more Mitt Romney is a liar. Okay, now, the rest of the media doesn't say that because they say, oh, well, that would be non-neutral. Uh, my God, that, 
you would be saying something that you can back up with facts. We wouldn't do that if we were the mainstream media. We have just call everything even, right? But it's not even, and I have an excellent example. Look, I can give you a million examples, just a quick side one for you. He says President Obama uh, doubled the deficit. It's just a flat out lie. There's no other way to describe it. When President Obama came in to office in 2008, he was added, a given, I should say, a $1.2 trillion deficit by George W. Bush. That's how much the deficit was when President Obama walked into the office, $1.2 trillion. How much was it last year? $1.1 trillion, actually lower than when President Obama came in. So how is that doubling the deficit? It's a lie. Even if they meant the debt, now those trillions handed in by Bush, and you can say continued by Obama if you want, that's fair, right? Add about $5 trillion over the course of those four years. Before that, our debt was around 10 to 11 trillion. So you can say, hey, you know what? The debt increased by 50%. Now that would be misleading because he got handed that deficit, but hey, it's true. Okay, so you can make that case, right? But that's not what Romney says. He doesn't say debt, he says deficit. He doesn't say 50%, he says it, he doubled it. It's a lie, it's nothing but a lie. Now, here's another awesome lie from Romney. He says, if I'm elected, I will add 12 million jobs. Wow, 12 million in his first term in four years. Well, that's kind of amazing. How in the world would you do that? He says, no, no, it's okay. Economists have already confirmed that I would add 12 million jobs. I love that. Like that economists all got together and they're like, yeah, confirm, confirm. Everybody agrees? 12 million? 11? 9? 13? Oh, well, 12 million it is. No. He picked three different studies, and you're going to love the de details. First of all, no economist believes he would add 12 million jobs. He's found three different economic reports that he claims, if you add them together, equal 12 million jobs. But nobody added them together except Mitt Romney. So one report says it, it, we could have 3 million uh, extra jobs. Another one says we can have 7 million extra jobs. And another one says 2 million extra jobs. So he says, well, 3 plus 7 plus 2 equals 12. No, but wait a minute, they're in the same time period. So you can't just add them together. The maximum one, the one that benefits you the most, is 7 million. Now, are, are these over the next four years? No, it gets better. So the 3 million jobs is over the next eight years. According to the estimate on the 7 million jobs, it's over the next 10 years. And the 2 million jobs is over an indefinite time period. So it's not 12 million. And it's not over the next four years. Now, here comes the third layer of the lie. Is it because of Romney's plans? Nope. The three million number comes from Morse Citigroup. And what they said was, this is what we expect the economy to add over the next eight years if we continue our, our existing policy. So it has nothing to do with Romney. If we continue our existing policies, but it gets better because Romney will not continue our existing policies. So, for example, he'll take away uh, the fuel efficiency standards, which, according to this report, will add jobs. So, how can Mitt Romney count those three million jobs when the report itself says that, that it, if you continue the policies that Romney's not in favor of, we would add three million jobs? Now, the 7 million is by uh, Rice University professor John Diamond. And I love this because he says, why would we create the 7 million jobs? Well, 
Apparently, he's a supply-side conservative right-wing economist, so he says, well, if you reduce taxes, you always add jobs. Oh, what a fail. But wait, we just did that for the last 10 years, and we didn't add jobs. We lost jobs. So what happened? Okay, no, he says, if you uh, reduce taxes, and by the way, if the plan is revenue neutral, which it's not, and it uh, reduces deficit, which it doesn't, then we would add 7 million jobs. But none of that stuff is true. Okay, that's the one that's most beneficial. And by the way, it takes 10 years, not four years. The last one's my favorite. The 2 million jobs, that's um, a May 2011 report by the U.S. International Trade Commission. Huh, interesting. They came out in favor of Romney? No, they didn't. <laughs> that 2 million has absolutely nothing to do with Romney. They say, if China stops ignoring U.S. intellectual property rights, then we could add another 2.1 million jobs in here in the U.S. So what does that have to do with Romney? Romney says, well, the minute I get elected, obviously I'd be so tough on China, they would say, oh, I, we will immediately enforce all those U.S. intellectual property rights that we have not enforced at all before this. Well, that's it. Add another $2 million to Romney. You see this? The whole campaign by Romney is predicated on lies. And it's an interesting strategy, actually, because they've decided, well, we've intimidated the media so much that they're going to call everything 50-50 anyway. So that doesn't mean that we can lie a little bit. It actually means we can lie a lot. We can lie about almost everything because there's no way in the world the media is going to say, oh my God, one side is lying about everything. Because my God, that would seem so biased, right? So perfect. That gives us an opportunity to do lying on a grand scale. And if you're going to lie about two or three things, why not just lie about everything? And in fact, you'll keep them so busy that they won't have time to call out all your different lies. It's an interesting strategy. And honestly, since they're tied at this point nationally, it's a strategy that's been somewhat effective. They were right. The media generally did not call them out. And, there is, and it has not been nearly as well established with the facts that you can use as I just did. Every single media organization in this country should be pointing that out. Not to be biased against Romney, but to give the American people the real facts before they vote so that you can actually do your job. Your job is to bring information and facts to the American people. Now, if you did that, would they really be tied? Would the guy who's lying about almost everything in his plan be tied with the guy who, yeah, it's not that Obama doesn't lie, and, and should the press call him out on that? Of course, of course they should. They should call him out on the drone strikes and his kill list and all those different things. But as far as campaign rhetoric and plans, etc., is it close? It's not remotely close. But that's exactly why the media won't do it. Because then it'll seem like, wow, we called Romney a liar 12 different times and Obama only two times. So let's just not do it at all. Let's just advocate our responsibility. That's what's wrong with American politics. That's what's wrong. Here at Best of the Left, supporting the good works of others is our entire reason for existence. Since the beginning of 2006, I've been making this show to highlight what I consider to be some of the best of the truly liberal media. Now I'm working on several ways to promote the best progressive activism around. Ruminate for a moment on whether you enjoy this show or consider its goals to be worthwhile, and if you do, please consider supporting this work by becoming a member for as little as $5 a month or even $55 a year at the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. It's the donations of members that allow the show to continue and continue to improve. Thanks so much for your support. Yeah,
It's the Onion Radio News. An American robot's job is outsourced to an overseas robot. This is Doyle Redland reporting. QT2D-7, an 11-year-old electric assembly operations robot in Canton, Ohio, was laid off today when the lawn boy plant employing it relocated its manufacturing headquarters to New Delhi, India. As it panned its infrared eye across the factory's empty parking lot, the out-of-work welding unit had this to communicate. Observation. I've never known anything but assembling lawnmowers. Query. Just like that, they throw me out. Infuriating robot labor groups, the eastern migration of U.S. robotic manufacturing jobs appears unstoppable, as Indian robots are much cheaper to employ, service, and replace than their American counterparts. Doyle Redland for the Onion Radio News. All the talk about media fact-checking the major party presidential candidate is well and good, but how about fact-checking the debate moderators? Here's ABC's Martha Raditz at the vice presidential debate. Let's talk about Medicare and entitlements. Both Medicare and Social Security are going broke and taking a larger share of the budget in the process. Will benefits for Americans under these programs have to change for the programs to survive? If you've been listening to this show for a while, you know this is something a lot of reporters say. It still isn't true, though. Social Security is not going broke, quite the opposite, in fact. The program has built up a multi-trillion dollar surplus to pay for the expected surge in retirees in the coming years. The program could be put on a more secure, long-term footing with a few minor changes, as many budget experts and economists have argued for years. Of course, this matters because journalists are supposed to get these things right. But in an election debate, it takes on additional weight. How can you respond? The right answer to a question based on a false premise is clearly that, yes, we must cut people's benefits if we are to deal with this urgent problem. A candidate who has to begin their response by correcting the premise of the question is at a distinct disadvantage, even though in this case they would be right. While well, hearing a journalist get such a basic fact wrong isn't an accident, it suggests a worldview that emphasizes the need to cut spending, particularly on programs that are important to poor people, over other policy ideas. And you can see that worldview expressed in a variety of ways in the corporate media. On the October 14th Meet the Press, NBC veteran Tom Brokaw shared some wisdom he'd heard from a group of pro-Romney major business leaders. They told Brokaw they were willing to pay a little more in taxes, but they need government spending to be capped at 20% of gross domestic product. Meet the Press host David Gregory chimed in to sort of endorse that view, saying that these are people, quote, not burdened by these ideological fights, close quote, which in the corporate media is the best kind of person. So why is this point of view considered so wise? 
Brokaw is saying that wealthy people who support Mitt Romney endorse Mitt Romney's spending plan. The reality of such a plan, though, would be harsh. Given that Romney is proposing massive increases in military spending, one estimate is that all of the non-military, non-health government spending would have to be cut by 40% in order to meet this goal favored by those non-ideological CEOs. And that's perhaps the most telling thing. Wealthy people who want to slash spending on the poor in the name of balancing the budget are not ideologues. And they'll likely always have media big shots like Tom Brokaw to relay their views to the rest of us. There's a man killed on Broadview in Maine. They've got a new drug, but we still feel the pain. But a dog saved a black kid from an oncoming train. So the story breaks even, still seem to lose. We all fall asleep with the time broke our blues. Out commies and slack pants Check baseball scores With country boys and loose belts And wives at the door While the men on a raft Without any oars Rose to the shore Filipino shoes Then falls asleep With the town broke our blues so I'm watching Meet the Press, and David Gregory asked Tom Brokaw this big question. The, the issue of the debt, the issue of taxes, I think it's important to get to one of the big issues here. We have got to, in these final few weeks, try to reach some resolution about this revenue issue. Whether we raise revenue to deal with the debt, because whether it's Medicare or whether it's dealing with uh, the debt level uh, at the level that it's at, without agreement on both sides, we're not going to be able to tackle some of these more difficult issues. Tom. What an astute observation by David Gregory, huh? Unless, unless the, we work together to solve some of these problems, we're never going to get ever to solve the problems. <laughs> Right, and that was some ass-kicking conventional wisdom, boy. <laughs> <laughs> so he, so he just outlines the problem. Hey, we have a debt problem, and unless they work together, they won't solve it, huh, Mister Brokaw? And Mister Brand, what a better guy to ask about our nation's problems because Tom Brokaw has a deep understanding of the country after years of flying over it in his private jet. <laughs> you know I, what they need to, uh, you don't think that Tom Brokaw I think Tom Brokaw understands how hard life can be for millions of Americans who've never anchored the NBC nightly news <laughs> <laughs> I do what do you want to say David that we are incapable of having a discussion about the debt because the news media is bought and sold and owned by the hedge funds the IMF the people the International Monetary Fund, which is responsible for all the pain and suffering in Latin America, even the IMF issued a report this week that says austerity doesn't work. Really? Yes. The IMF says that's what's going on in Europe is gonna get worse because of the austerity. The IMF is saying you have to raise taxes. Bloomberg had an editorial this week that said you cannot dig your way out of this debt. Unless you raise taxes, there is not a legitimate economist in the world that you cannot find a legitimate economist to tell you that tax cuts are the solution to debt and our economy. Uh, right. I can name one. Grover Norquist. Yeah, he's not a legitimate. He's not he knows, he knows he's, he's so much. Economist. Don't run right. down Grover so Norquist. So they're not having – so instead of putting on 
these these pundits on Meet the Press. Why don't you get some legitimate right. economists right. and explain uh, well, how Reagan racked up debt by cutting taxes, how Bush racked up debt by cutting taxes. Mm-hmm. Every once in a while – that would be partisan if they did Every that. once in a while, George <laughs> Snuffleupagus has Paul Krugman on and then they have to balance him on, out by having on Ann Coulter – and George Will and Jake Tapper. Nobel Prize winning economist yes. Paul Krugman from the New York Times yes. who teaches economics at Princeton yes. with Ann Coulter yes. who has what? That, nothing. She pretty wrote, hair. Right. She has pretty hair. So, here, so, here's the, uh, so here's what Tom Brokaw's response is, by the, by the way. Here, here he goes. You know, I think that both uh, campaigns have failed to say to the American public. Oh, right. So first of all, you start out with a false equivalency. That's my favorite thing. Both, mm-hmm. both sides do it. Both sides do it. You know, I think that both uh, campaigns have failed to say to the American public, this is going to be hard. And by hard, he, he means hard on you, not Tom Brokaw or any of his <laughs> friends. He means hard on working people who count on Social Security and Medicare, not people who count on stock options in a rigged economy. That's who he <laughs> means it's going to be hard for. Not hard for any of us TV icons, of course. I mean hard for all you smucks who thought you could retire before you're 80. That's who it's going to be hard on. Not hard on him. Yeah, that's Tom. Okay, well, he's got more to say. Here's Tom Brokaw. They've got a level with the American people about everyone's going to have to give something, and there's going to have to be some revenue raised at some point. Yeah, yeah. Everybody's going to have to give something. On the bright side, uh, Tom Brokaw and none of his millionaire friends will feel a goddamn thing. Yeah. Everybody's, but everybody's going to have to give. Tom Brokaw's going to have to give. What are you going to sacrifice, Tom Brokaw? What exactly are you going to sacrifice? Are you going to give up? Are you going to spend 15 cents more on your kerchiefs? The letter R. <laughs> He's giving up the letter R. I'm Tom Brokaw. Tuning in for Harry. Hey, by the way, the only thing Tom Brokaw is qualified to talk about is how to really use a pro- teleprompter. Teleprompter. Yes. That, that guy doesn't know anything. What he's I like not about a journalist, he's a newsreader. What I, you, know, you can tell he's a good journalist because he got a, he got the um, he got an award from a military institution. You know how that's they lay love reporters the military, don't they? That's how you can tell he's a good muckraker. <laughs> Just like you can tell the guys who are the best FBI agents, they're the ones that get awards from the mafia. <laughs> you know what? I'll say I'll say this for him. In the mid nineties, he broke the story of the invasion of Normandy. <laughs> <laughs> he was reporting from the live from the deck of the Achilles Laurel. Yeah, you're right, Frank. He, 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 we didn't know that our fathers were the greatest generation until he told us, and he wrote a book yeah. and made millions off it. Yeah, instead of writing a book called yeah, – he was out kissing the ass of America instead of writing a book called, Hey, this war is bullshit and the banks are about to fuck everyone. <laughs> instead of doing that, he was writing another book that kissed our ass. Hey, you know what? Tell me, you know, maybe you could write down your next book on the back of your kerchief. Maybe you could. That's why you can tell he's a good newsman. When are the newsmen going to start wearing ascots? That's my question. Because <laughs> that's why I really like my. So he's got more to say. I talked to a lot of major business leaders who want Romney to get elected. He he talks to a lot. Did you hear? He talks yeah. to a lot of major. So this is supposed to be him showing. Look, I, I'm in the know. I'm so glad that Tom Brokaw keeps polling the one percent. He's got his finger on the to, penis of all. <laughs> The major business. Thank leader. God he's consulting the people who smashed our economy to smithereens out of nothing more than unbridled greed. And you know, one of those people who he thought, who I guarantee you, who he's talked to, is his good friend Jack Welch. Jack Welch. Yes. Who used to be his boss, 
and uh, and who who he's very close with. Yes, I'm sure. I'm sure. Would... Now a crazy, a crazy budget truther now. So the so the guys. Did you, know, did you see Orwell rolls, rolls over in his grave? The documentary about the First Amendment and the state of the media. They have facts that when Jack Welch was running GE in 2000 on election day, he got on the phone and ordered Brokaw to call the election for Bush. Yes, and Brokaw did to create that illusion that Bush won so that they could say the votes were counted and Bush won. And really? Yes, and, and Welch was smart enough to know that if you create the illusion and call yes. it early, people are going to think, well, Bush won and now Al Gore is being petulant. Yes, yes. Orwell rolls over in his grave. Great documentary. And let me tell you, uh, it, it's no greatest generation. It's just weird that he keep really like he says it like as if he's got some inside information. I talked to the uh, business owners who want Mitt Romney to win. You know, quit talking to those guys. They're the ones who crashed our economy. Hey, yeah, let, hey, you know what, Tom? That's great. You mean you? I, I would love to hear what Gilligan and the Skipper's ideas are on how to get us off the island. Are they ever going to fix our boat? That's yeah. who he. Okay, so he's got more to say. Hang on. But uh, almost to a man and a woman, they say, but you know what, we're going to have to pay some more taxes in our category. What they want to do, however, is to benchmark them against spending cuts. So that sure, sure, when he means be benchmarks against spending cuts, <laughs> again, he means that he's going to pay 10 cents more for a kerchief while you don't get to have health care when you retire. <laughs> That's what he's talking about. Those are those be be benchmarks. And uh, we're not bro the country's not broke. The country Corporate is not America broke. is sitting on two trillion dollars in cash. That's an old statistic. It might be three by now. There, no, it's two trillion. Two trillion dollars that the corporations are sitting on two trillion dollars, and they say that they just need confidence before they invest it. And I say, if two trillion dollars doesn't give you confidence, maybe try dance lessons. <laughs> <laughs> by the way, they're, they're holding the nation hostage. They're they're basically saying like once once you put Romney in. We'll release this money. Yes, that's that's. that's they're not releasing. They're never never releasing that, that money. It's going overseas. That money, they're never going to spend it. And here's the thing: two thirds of our economy is consumer based. It's what we buy, not what they sell us. So if they don't like America, if if mm -hmm. GE doesn't like America, get out. Right. Get out. Go right. go. Set up. You're already out of the country. Right. Go leave. <laughs> We'll be fine without these multinationals. We don't need them. Do what France just did. What did they just do? I, th I think they. Uh, I think the uh, corporations are required to stay. Uh, they can leave. The, the heads of the corporations can leave, but their businesses have to stay. No, they can leave, but they have to keep their heads in France. <laughs> You're free I, to go. I like what Iceland did. They put their bankers in jail, and their economy's recovering. Hang on. Governor McDonald. Okay, so, so here's Tom Brokaw's last thing. There's going to have to be a combination in their judgment. Now, these are private business leaders who run big companies and entrepreneurial people. And to a man and a woman, they're saying, I can afford to pay a little more if I think it's going to go for the right formulation about getting spending and right. tax revenue back in line. Yeah, so when he's saying he's all for they're all for paying more money, it, as long as it isn't thrown away by making life better for everybody, that's what they're upset. Go ahead, Frank. I'm incredibly, I'm incredibly, unbelievably rich 
and I'm willing to pay my fair share, but <laughs> under certain conditions. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> under certain conditions, right. As long as so... I'm what- not just going to spend my money to help the country. I'm just not going to make a contribute my fair share without some poorer people suffering. Yeah, like the, what what they mean is that they're going to kick in a little more to pay for the wars that they wanted if we keep firing teachers, cops, and firemen. That's what they mean. Don't you dare speak of the commonwealth To become every man for himself Rich and poor, void in between Raise a wire, gay community Wealthiest anomalies with their own privatized police while the silent majority will say it's for the best, obey the corporate American dream. Here's a significant revelation of which you may not be aware. The plutocrats know it and they love it and the rest of us should be forewarned. When the Supreme Court made its infamous Citizens United decision liberating plutocrats to buy our elections fair and square, the justices may have effectively overturned rules that kept bosses from ordering employees to do political work on company time. Election law expert Trevor Potter told us that now corporations argue that it is a constitutionally protected use of corporate resources to order employees to do political work or attend campaign events, even if the employee opposes the candidate or is threatened with being fired for failure to do what the corporation asks. Reporter Mike Elk at In These Times magazine came across a recording of Governor Mitt Romney on a conference call in June with some business executives. The governor told them there is, quote, nothing illegal about you talking to your employees about what you believe is best for the business because I think that will figure into their election decision, their voting decision, and of course, doing that with your family and your kids as well. And here's Governor Romney two months later, campaigning at an Ohio coal mine. This is a time for truth. I listened to an ad on the, uh, the way here. I'll tell you, you got a great boss. He runs a great operation here. And he, uh, yeah. Bob, yeah. right, Bob, there he is. Look at all those miners around him, steadfastly standing in support, right? They work for a company called Murray Energy, and attendance at the rally, without pay, was mandatory. Murray Energy is notorious for violating safety regulations, sometimes resulting in injuries and deaths, and the company has paid millions in fines. The CEO, Bob Murray, is a well-known climate change denier and cutthroat businessman. He insists that his employees contribute to his favorite anti-regulatory candidates or else. In one letter uncovered by the New Republic magazine, Murray wrote, quote, we have been insulted by every salaried employee who does not support our efforts. So much for voting rights and the secret ballot at Murray Energy. Mike Elk also discovered that the Koch brothers, David and Charles, who have pledged to spend multi-millions of dollars to defeat President Obama, have sent a voter information packet to the employees of Georgia Pacific, one of their subsidiaries. It includes a list of recommended candidates, pro-Romney and anti-Obama editorials written by the Kochs, and a cover letter from the company president. If we elect the wrong people, Dave Robertson writes, 
many of our more than 50,000 U.S. employees and contractors may suffer the consequences, including higher gasoline prices, runaway inflation, and other ills. Other ills? Like losing your job? This is snowballing. Timeshare King David Siegel of Westgate Resorts reportedly has threatened to fire employees if Barack Obama is re-elected. And Arthur Allen, who runs ASG Software Solutions, emailed his employees, if we fail as a nation to make the right choice on November 6 and we lose our independence as a company, I don't want to hear any complaints regarding the fallout that will most likely come. Back in the first Gilded Age in the 19th century, bosses in company towns lined up their workers and marched them to vote as a bloc. As we said at the beginning of this broadcast, the Gilded Age is back with a vengeance. Welcome to the plutocracy, the remains of the old USA. This is not how I want to be forgotten. This is not how I want to leave remains. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. A trial program involving the suspension of all public education in Alabama has gone terribly wrong as unemployed teachers fight their former students over hard-to-get jobs in the private sector. Former middle school geography teacher Bradley Dixon was arrested earlier today after a bitter confrontation with his ex-pupil Janie Sue Gramley outside a local catfish processing plant where both sought work. Hey, just because Janie's 12 and doesn't legally have to be paid minimum wage is no reason for her to be hired over me. I can lift more dead fish than she can any day of the week. Ben Stein, talking about Steins, unrelated. Ben Stein went on Fox News, and he, this isn't the first time he said that we need to raise taxes on the rich to help the economy, but he actually said, I hope I don't get killed, given that I'm saying this on Fox News. And of course, he got the, the, the usual question from, I think it's Steve Ducey, or one of the people on Fox and Friends, and it was, well, aren't we just spending too much? Ben Stein making an obvious case for what needs to happen here. Take a look is the way in which we fix the economy with entitlements, spending, taxes, how do you see it? 
I, I hate to say this on Fox, and I hope I'll be allowed to leave here alive, but I don't think there's any way we can cut spending enough uh, to make a meaningful difference. We're going to have to raise taxes on very rich people, people with incomes of, like, say, two, three, four million a year and up, and then slowly, slowly, slowly move it down. Two fifty a year, that's not a rich person. So you don't think Washington <clears throat> just has a spending I problem? I do not think they just have a spending problem. I think they have partly a spending problem. But they also have a too low taxes problem, and uh, with all due respect to Fox, whom I love like brothers and sisters, well, they that sounds like are too Let's low. pause it there for a second. It's funny because he's making it clear the reason he's scared to say this stuff is because Fox is so overtly uh, uh, right-wing anti-taxes on the rich, and nobody's arguing that. In yeah. other words, at no point does, and do either of these three individuals on the couch, Steve Ducey, Brian Kilmeade, and, and Gretchen Carlson, they never say... Well, what, what do you mean? I mean, we do news. We, we're open to all... They never say that. It's almost like this complicit acceptance that, yeah, it is Fox News, and, and we have an agenda here. Yeah, it's great. I love it. Let's continue a little more here from Ben Stein. Sounds like Bull Simpson. It is Bull Simpson. So you agreed with the deputy? Yes, they, they have to cut spending and raise taxes. But they, more they, revenue they, was brought in during the mm -hmm. Bush years than any other time. Well, because the economy grows growing during that time, uh, but uh, it, even more revenue would have been brought in if they hadn't cut taxes. I mean, revenue is very largely a function of two things, tax rates and the level of economic activity. The level of economic activity was very high until 2008, so they're bringing in more money. But, actually, but tax revenues actually fell from 2001 to 2002, then they recovered. Right, but so, but the, Ben and you have this great economic mind. I but don't. would they have? Would Your they have? Would the revenues have grown at the rate if the taxes were too high? Well, the evidence is that. That's yeah, it's funny. Brian Kilmeade y y says, "Well, Ben, you have a great economic mind." No, he understands really basic stuff. Like if you if rich people pay less on taxes. That's not going to create jobs because they're not going to go out and hire people. A lot of those rich people don't even have businesses. They're living off of investments. And number two, you would still continue to invest even with higher capital gains rates up until the point at which there's a negative return. In other words, if you can have your dollars working for you, remember, the tax is on the gain, not the initial capital. If you can have your dollars, think about your dollars as employees. If your employees, after paying those employees, paying the tax on the gain, your employees are still going to bring you a gain the economic uh, uh, incentive is you continue producing because you have a positive marginal revenue there. And you would keep doing it. So this idea, it's, it doesn't require a genius or it doesn't require a great economic mind. It requires common sense. That's it. Right. This is great. And they keep trying to, to catch him somehow and to make him admit something that uh, it's not going to happen. Uh, he completely dominates Fox News. I love it. And he's a conservative guy. Right. That, that He's a Republican. He's a conservative. He just understands that... This this is a silly way of going about things. Cutting taxes on the on the rich. Come Facts. on. Facts are good. Facts are good. I, mean, I think he understands that. I think he does. Hopefully he made it out alive. in the New York Times by Laura DeAndrea Tyson and Owen, Z uh, Owen Zidar. Uh, Tyson is a professor at the Haas School of Business at the University of California, Berkeley. Was a chair 
chairperson of the Council of Economic Affairs under President Clinton. Zadar is a doctoral student at economics in the University of California, Berkeley. Was formerly an analyst at Bain Capital Adventures. They start by talking about uh, Mitt Romney's plan to reduce taxes for everyone. That's how come the rich will maintain their share of taxes. He will cut taxes on millionaires. It's just that he's going to cut taxes on everyone so that the share in which they pay of taxes of the total revenue, not the share of their income, their share of their income will go down, but the share of total revenue will stay at the same, which is roughly commensurate. Uh, I think the top 20% uh, pays about, about 20% of the revenue that comes in, eh, more or less. It's not a one-to-one -one ratio. So he's going to maintain that by cutting their tax. So essentially, less revenue comes in, the uh, deficit expands, the debt expands. I don't know if that's necessarily a problem, but the issue is whether or not the idea of cutting taxes on rich people let's say the top 5% as opposed to the bottom 95%, actually creates more jobs. Well, they have published a study which shows that, mm, no. Romney's plan arrests on the assertion that lower taxes for high-income taxpayers will, econo will increase economic activity and employment and therefore increase the amount of money that they make, the rich people, and will raise revenue. Right? That's the Laffer curve. That's the uh, supply-side economics. It's, of course, bunk, and even more so during a recession. The regression analysis and graph in which it's based reveal that there is no link between income tax cuts for the top 5% and subsequent job return creation. We also examined the relation between tax cuts for the top 10% and subsequent job creation and found the same results. The Reagan tax cut of 1982, the Clinton tax increase of 93, and the Bush tax cut of 2003, and subsequent employment growth were studied. Strong employment growth followed the Reagan cut, but the employment growth following the Clinton tax increase exceeded the employment growth following the Bush tax cut, which was comparable in size to the Reagan cut. Job growth at the state level after national tax cuts for high-income earners confirms the absence of a strong link between such cuts and the pace of job creation in the next two years. So short-term, cutting taxes for the top 5 or 10 percent does not create any significant increase in the number of jobs being created. If there were a strong link between job creation and tax cuts for high-income job creators, we should be able to see the effect somewhere, but we have found no evidence that such cuts lead to sustainability, uh, su substantially faster employment growth at the national, state, or even the zip code level. And this is important because we know that really there's like, what, a dozen counties in the country where there's this type of real money? Rich people tend to live together because it's nicer there. Tax cuts for everyone else are a much more effective path to job creation. 
there is a statistically significant and positive relationship between tax cuts for the bottom 95% and job growth at both the national and state levels. One, uh, our results indicate that almost all the stimulative effect of income and payroll tax cuts on job creation in the short to medium run the time frame result from such cuts to the bottom 95%. Why, and this is something that we've repeated on this program over and over again, lower income taxpayers spend a greater share of their tax cut immediately. And overall, for that matter. And when they spend this money, it is essentially demand. Demand for products and services. That demand creates a need to hire more people to fulfill that demand. These demand-side forces explain why consumption goes up much more after tax cuts for the bottom 95% than after equivalently-sized cuts for the top 5%. Consumption still accounts for 70% of GDP. And, and get this, investment also increases after tax cuts for the bottom 95%, suggesting that shifting moderately sized tax cuts to the bottom 95% from the top 5% isn't a zero-sum trade-off between consumption and investment. See, what happens if you are in the top 5 or 10% of the income distribution? You have enough money that you're buying everything that you want or need. We're talking personal taxes here. And so what you do is you put it, you play that market and you play that money in the stock market. You gamble with it. Maybe you make some investments in some companies that are actually really real as opposed to just buying their stocks and playing the market. Well, it turns out that you still see that type of investment, at least in uh, real-world things and maybe some in the stock, to some degree when you give tax cuts to the bottom 95%, because not everybody's going to spend every dollar. Instead, an increase in demand and economic activity because of an increase in consumption also makes investment more attractive. So the stimulative effect of having the bottom 95% spend more actually increases investment from the top 5 to 10% because they see that demand is increasing. Theirs, of course, is not the only study to show this. The CBO did a study. Moody's chief economist, Mark Zandi, did a study. What about the long run? A recent review by three distinguished academic e economists also found no convincing activity that real economic activity responds materially to tax cut rate changes on top income earners. Also, the Congressional Research Service found no relationship between cuts in marginal tax rates for high income earners and growth in job creation. Now, I know this is science, so of course this is meaningless to most conservatives.
just got back from the Cayman Islands where I was investigating the shady world of tax havens. And I know your first thought is, you expect me to believe you went to the Caribbean just to do work? That's like saying you had sex with a supermodel only because you wanted to finish your photo project entitled The Many Faces of Disappointed Supermodels. But you can actually believe me on this because I'm one of those weird people who hates hot beaches, doesn't collect tax-free wristwatches, and doesn't enjoy turtle burgers. So the Cayman Islands is genuinely a miserable place for me. Over a hundred billion dollars is lost in U.S. tax revenue each year to tax havens. Everyone from Mitt Romney to Google to Apple to Shakira uses offshore accounts to make sure they aren't paying the proper amount. But the term tax havens sounds a little too friendly, a little too polite. Really what these corporations and are avoiding is contributing to the society that made them possible. It's a bit you to the invisible hand that fed them. So let's stop calling it a tax haven and instead call it a societal contribution avoidance scheme. And instead of an offshore account, call it a trader account. These are traders. These are people whose allegiance is not to the country that made them rich, but to the money itself. $32 trillion. $32 trillion is sitting in trader accounts around the globe, not being used, not helping a soul. Let's make a new kind of money that spoils after a couple of years. Maybe it could be made out of, out of yogurt or cantaloupe or pepper jack cheese, and if you don't use it, it turns to pulp and smells of death. Or worse yet, smells like Frank Luntz in a sauna surrounded by piles of old guy underwear. Work, work on getting that image out of your head. Anyway, I and a small team went down to the Trader Account Central and decided to try and get our own offshore address. Because going there and not getting one would be like going to Thailand and not getting a Thai lady boy or, or going to the shish kebab place in my neighborhood and not getting dysentery. It just wouldn't seem right. But for some odd reason, the people working in the trader account locations and the International Monetary Authority of the Cayman Islands were not happy to speak to us on camera. We heard turn that camera off more than Sharon Osbourne hears. What exactly is it you do again? If these trader accounts are supposedly legitimate business dealings, then why so secretive? Why have shell companies and blocker companies? Why hide every detail of what goes on down there? Maybe, just maybe, it's because the traders are trying to cover up their treacherous, treasonous, traitory, traitorness. These people and corporations want to suck up every benefit of the United States or whichever country they happen to be in. They want the customers, the roads, the police, the infrastructure, the laws, protection, and pornography. But they don't want to contribute to make sure it's a thriving society. They want all the freedoms, powers, and rights, but none of the responsibility. And they'll keep stealing money from their fellow citizens until they're stopped. The Cayman Islands used to be where pirates would hide their booty, and now it's where modern-day pirates do the same. The R stands for Romney and Ryan and other ruthless million and billionaires. And they've replaced their hook hands with laptops and Botox. Romney wants to cut Big Bird in public broadcasting in order to save the mere $167 million it will receive in the coming year. He could get 600 times that much by closing the trader accounts that he and his friends enjoy. Your grotesque, shrouded body that you That only you can bear You're invisible and as wild as the sea And you hurt what you hold most dear You're the traitor and you are me 
for the first time ever, warehouse employees at Walmart stores are uh, walking out and striking. And this is a very big deal because we've heard a lot of drama with Walmart. You know, they refuse to unionize their workers. Uh, they refuse to pay them a fair wage for their hard work. Um, and a lot of employees are now ti so tired of it that they're willing to risk their jobs to walk out and do the strike. So, um, you know, they're asking for something very simple. Uh, for instance, there's one employee who's been there, uh, he's striking, he's been there for three years, and he's still making a little over $8, $8.90 an hour, mm -hmm. okay? Uh, and he's working in the produce section. Uh, they're not giving these employees what they need to survive, despite the fact that they are massively profitable. So, uh, it's a multi-city strike for the first time in Walmart's history in the, uh, in the last 50 years. And one of the original strikes that began this was uh, in a place for subcontractors as, as they were doing business there. The, the factory got to be 120 degrees. So the two things they were asking for, they weren't asking for like great benefits or even increased salaries. They wanted ceiling fans because it was 120 degrees in there. And they wanted shin guards because those heavy carts that they were pushing around kept running into their shins and they were getting hurt. Shin guards, that's it. And ceiling fans, what does that cost? Almost nothing, right? But well, no, you know, we gotta make a dime. No, we gotta make an extra, we gotta squeeze an extra dime out of you. Well, Walmart can't outsource the jobs to China or to another country where, you know, people don't care about workers' rights, right? So maybe they can just treat them like China treats their workers here in the United States. Well, I mean, that's where we're headed. And that's why people are mad about it. That's part of the reason for the strike. Now, when one of the people, uh, one of the workers talked to a guy organizing the strike over his lunch break, there was managers nearby, and then they said, that's it. Uh, you stole time from us by talking to that guy. You're fired. Okay? And that's part of the retaliation. Now Walmart says, no, 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 no. They settled a thing about the ceiling fans, and they put in ceiling fans, et cetera, and they're trying to poo-poo this before it becomes a public relations disaster for them mm -hmm. and try to minimize it. But look, the bigger problem I have with Walmart is they shift a lot of their costs onto us, the taxpayers, because they won't give benefits to their workers, and those guys got to get health care some way, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so what do they do? They rely on the state, whether it's Medicaid or showing up at the emergency room, et cetera. That way we pay for their health care instead of their employer, Walmart. So that I can't abide by either. So it's whether how they're treating their employees in the wrong way or they're treating the taxpayers in the wrong way. And so what is the result of this, by the way? Well, they, the Walton family that started it, of course, has gotten tremendously wealthy. Now, Sam Walton passed away. He was the one who created Walmart. His six heirs that got the money, in 2007, they held the equivalent of, they had so much money, it was the equivalent of 30.5% of the entire U.S. population for just six people. Oh, my God. Okay, that was in uh, 07. In 2010, well, there was a recession. In the meanwhile, it probably went down. No. They now hold the equivalent wealth of 41.5% of the entire United States population. Just those six heirs, they didn't even start the company. Mm -hmm. Okay, mm -hmm. their father did. Six people... 41.5% of the population, but it's still not enough. After all that, you gotta go on strike before they put in ceiling fans in a 120 degree factory, before they give you shin guards. It's never enough.
Hey, Jay. Uh, this is John. Uh, I was just calling to uh, maybe give a little different perspective on the binders full of women comment. Maybe not. Um, but uh, I just wanted to say, first of all, thank you very much for all the conversations about privilege that you've had uh, over the last 12 months. It's uh, caused me to you know, look at things through different lenses than I ever would before. And uh, the lens that I have come to this with is the lens of male privilege. For example, when I saw or when I heard the comment and, and saw the debate, I had the same reaction that you did. Uh, you know, the binders full of women thing. I knew what he was talking about. I knew uh, what he was getting at. And I saw the, the, you know, the Tumblr and the memes and I thought it was really funny, but I didn't get outraged. Whereas uh, my wife, who has worked for city government uh, as, a, as a woman, you know, she was as qualified as I'm more qualified than most of her cohorts. And she worked longer, you know, harder. And granted, we don't have any kids, uh, but we don't want kids. And, you know, she's constantly being stereotyped as a woman, as someone who special accommodations have to be made because she's a woman. And inevitably, you know, she is going to have to cause some sort of, uh, of problems with her employer due to the fact that she's a woman. And eventually there's you know, going to be the kids thing. And, so she looks at things through a different lens than I do, having had to deal with that. She also got objectified quite a bit in her role with uh, the city government. Uh, there was, it was very much a, a man's club and uh, she was working harder. She was very good at her job. She's no longer there anymore, but she got outraged at the binders full of women comment. And when I tried to look at it through her lens, I realized that I don't have that experience. I do not have the problem of being objectified in that way, of being, uh, of having everyone assume that special accommodations are going to have to be made for me. Therefore, it didn't matter to me. I mean, it, it mattered insofar as it was funny and stuff, but um, I did not get outraged about it. Whereas someone who has the life experiences that my wife does, it really struck home and it really struck hard. So, like I said, that's just my uh, two cents. Ho uh, hopefully, it, it you know, looking at it through the lens of privilege versus looking at it just from the outside uh, is maybe a different perspective. I don't know. Thanks for all that you do. I wouldn't even have the uh, the, the idea of looking at it through different lenses if it wasn't for uh, your conversations about privilege and the amazing voicemails you get on the show. So, thank you very much for all that you do. Keep up the great work. Have a good day. Hi, Jay. Um, I'm calling about the uh, last podcast where you um, were talking about the Binders Full of Women meme and not really understanding why that was important. I have to say I somewhat disagree with you. I um, was also watching the debate, and when Mitt Romney said that about Binders Full of Women, the thing that occurred to me was not a miscommunication of an idea or the ridiculousness that he would have binders literally full of women, but the more ridiculous idea that he would need to have binders full of qualified women in order to hire women as part of his administration. And I think that a lot of the memes have taken on more of the silly aspect of that idea, you know, showing Barbies or women spilling out of binders, but the overall idea is still the same, which is that there's a pervasive problem in the Mitt Romney campaign and in the Republican Party as a whole where they don't take 
women seriously as intellectuals and contributors to our society. Um, Mitt Romney himself said it later on in the debate when he was talking about families and, and how women needed to get home to cook dinner. I think all of that gets encapsulated in this idea of, of that he would need binders full of women in order to find somebody qualified to hire for his administration. So I guess I somewhat disagree with you. I think it's good that a spotlight has been put on this issue and none of the debates that they touch on a lot of the issues that are surrounding the conservative perspective on women's rights and women's issues and I think there needs to be more awareness about what exactly this party intends to do as far as women's rights go and their overall general attitude towards women and what women are good for and uh, I, I've seen a couple of memes that are that are pretty poignant. One was a binder it was titled Binders Full of Women but it was in the kitchen surrounded by utensils and everything which is probably exactly where Mitt Romney would like us all to be. So that's what I wanted to say and I love the show. Thanks. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. So mercifully, because I've had a couple of days to think about the binders issue, I don't have to talk about it for very long. I think I can say what I want to say pretty concisely. So I've realized that my critique of the whole situation can be boiled down to this. I am not coming at it from a feminist perspective. I'm coming at it from a comedic perspective, actually. And so I agree with every single point that every caller and emailer has made about the importance of the issue and, and why it needed to be brought up and, and highlighted. My problem is that I didn't think the comedy that came out rose to the level needed to actually uh, drive the conversation in the way it needed to be. And so the best example of this I can think of is... You know, one of the pictures I saw more than once was Clinton, you know, picture of Clinton and the caption was, did someone say a binder full of women, which I mean, it makes fun of Clinton and makes fun of the phrase, but it's, it's a stretch. It's quite a stretch from actually skewering Romney for his inability to find women uh, to apply to work in his cabinet. It's just, it's a stretch. And so it only makes sense to people who already know what's going on. And I think the best satire both informs and criticizes simultaneously. And that's what the vast, vast majority of the, you know, comments or comedy and memes and all those things completely fail to do. And so just with this one example, like I'm not a comedy genius, but this sort of it is my way of showing you what I mean rather than just saying it. If there was a picture of Clinton and instead of saying, did someone say binder full of women? If it said, I hear Romney can't find any women on his own. I'm here to help. It's still silly. It's still sort of funny. It, uh, you know, it still teases Clinton. It's fine. It's all fine, but it actually targets Romney the way he needed to be targeted. And that was my problem. So every, everything I was saying about, missing the point and uh, so on was that I agree with everyone that it's an important issue and that's why I was upset that I felt like the point was being missed because the space between the the comedy and the memes and, and the comments and the actual skewering that needed to be done of Romney 
was too far for someone who wasn't already in the know. So people who listen to this show, like, of course, like you get the jokes, you get the silliness and you get the context. But for anyone else, I mean, the vast, vast majority of people don't have a clue what's going on, you know, not way down in the weeds of politics like this. And, and so that's where I thought it was a missed opportunity to actually inform people outside this like tight inner circle of informed people. So hopefully that clarifies uh, my point to some extent and uh, whether it does or not, I don't plan on talking about it again. Now uh, onto more things. I, I want to promote an event that's going on. Every time I promote something uh, climate change related, uh, you know, big event or, or anything, the people I always go to are 350.org. They are just the absolute best organization I've ever heard of who uh, who deals with climate change. They're run by Bill McKibben, who's not only sort of like the godfather of the climate change movement, he wasn't just one of the first people uh, talking about the issue. He's also one of the best. I mean, it didn't need to work out that way. He could have been the first and just been like a middling guy and other people could have picked up his mantle and been much better than him, but they kind of didn't. So uh, he was one of, you know, one of the first and one of the best and 350.org that he runs is the best organization uh, there is. And so starting November 7th, 350.org is doing a tour and they're going all around the country, different uh, event dates starting November 7th and going forward. And uh, so you can find out about uh, events in your area by going to math.350.org. This is their do the math tour in terms of uh, doing the math about how much carbon can be released in the atmosphere before, uh, you know, things start to get really, really bad. So math.350.org, uh, there are events all up and down both coasts and several cities in the middle of the country. And I will be at the, uh, November 18th event in Washington, DC. So, you know, that's happening. I'll be there, but wherever you are, there's a, there's a chance that there is an event going on in a city near you. Finally today, I just want to remind everyone that voting is happening. Best of Left is uh, nominated for at least one award, possibly more. So at stitcher.com slash stitcher awards, we're nominated amongst a, a, a whole slew of really prominent media organizations uh, against the Wall Street Journal, the BBC, the Rachel Maddow Show, Marketplace, and Fox News Radio. Uh, so I would love it if you would go and vote there at stitcher.com slash stitcher awards. And also the podcast awards are just about to announce their slate for this year's voting I have attempted to get nominated in the best produced category as well as the news and politics category. So we'll find out very soon. Like by the time you listen to this, it's probably going to be announced. So check out podcastawards.com. And if we're nominated there, as uh, I hope to be, uh, please uh, give votes there. That can also be done once each day. Same with Stitcher, vote once each day. And uh, I would really appreciate it if you did what I've done and actually set a daily alarm for myself. So every day, you know, around lunchtime when I, you know, the energy starts to fade and I want a distraction, my alarm goes off and says, oh, go vote. And so I vote obviously not just for me, but for a whole, you know, slate of, uh, of podcasts because it's, you know, it's my way of feeling like I'm a little bit connected with the podcasting community and, and all that. And uh, it's a way to support all the diff of the different podcasts in all the different categories you feel like supporting. 
So thanks to everyone who is doing that or is going to do that. And that is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening, of course. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is how the show uh, survives financially. And, of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading the word of individual clips you particularly like through your social networks. That can all be done at the website. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donor to the show from bestoftheleft.com